bottled water is a massive challenge. It's not the evil that it's made out to be sort of in the broader media because it's solving a problem for people, but it is also a massive environmental challenge we have to solve. How do we solve drinking water for those people in a way that's also sustainable? I'm Talib Vizram, and this is World Changing Ideas, where we investigate how leading innovators are solving our most challenging issues. On today's episode, harnessing water from thin air. It's a crazy to think that in this world where human being is sending a man to the moon and we have already sent a scientific robot to, to the Mars, then why 2.2 billion people should suffer from drinking water, safe drinking water? Former UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon gave a talk this past August on World Water Day. He said that the global water crisis isn't due to a lack of capital or expertise, but rather a moral failure of our policies. We need to start planning for a world with a lot less water as the demand continues to rise due to population and economic growth. Although this is a macro problem, one man decided to come at this from a more micro perspective. He was inspired by a 13-year-old girl named Aisha, who spends up to nine hours every day in search of water for her family. I arrive in Pakistan, assemble a team with the mission to come up with a way of providing water for communities like those of Aisha's. Ones where the water source is distant, contaminated, and that also lack basic infrastructure, including lack of electricity. Hamza Farooq is the founder and president of Bunda Shams, a charity he founded to help clean up the contaminated water in his home village, as well as countless others across the world. His team developed a solar-powered water filtration device that uses renewable energy to decontaminate and store water. Each solar box costs $10,000 to construct, start to finish, all-inclusive. It can serve, like we said, 2,000 people every single day. The UN recommends one person drink eight cups of water every day. So with this solution, that's 16,000 cups of water generated every day. Now follow me here because within a year, that's 365 days, multiplied by 16,000, that's a staggering 5.8 million cups of water per year. So with $10,000, you can provide a clean cup of water to every single person in the five boroughs of New York City. That's an estimated 145 million cups of water in 25 years. By the way, each liter of water with these estimates then costs $0.0003. So 3,657 times less expensive than buying a dollar water bottle. The Oasis box, as it's called, draws water from underground aquifers. So the water is already there, it just needs to be drawn up. But my guest today has created a device that can collect water from the air. Cody Friesen is the founder and CEO of Source Global, a company that collects water through its hydro panels. They harness the energy of the sun to draw water vapor from the atmosphere. 
The company also just received $7 million from Chamath Palahapitiya, founder of Social Capital, to scatter the hydro panels across California's Central Valley. Well, welcome to the show, Cody. Thanks for having me, Talib. Really excited to chat with you this morning. So let's start from the beginning. First things first, why did you come up with the idea to start Source Global? You know, what are the kind of crises in the world that are causing water shortage? Yeah, I mean, so my background is not in water, but rather in renewable energy. I've been in that space for about two decades, uh, having done a PhD at MIT in material science and then now been a professor of material science at Arizona State University since 2004. So, you know, really been thinking about renewables for a very long time. Um, and what we all saw, I think, over the last decade is suddenly solar get cheaper than coal and lithium ion batteries get really safe and really cheap and sort of really enable a lot of the electric vehicles, et cetera. So from an innovation and entrepreneurial perspective, the question in my mind was sort of what could we do with the principles of renewables, but yet not apply them to electricity, but some other resource. And I'd had a longstanding interest in water. I had grown up in Arizona, where, of course, water stress is driven by water scarcity. Uh, and the previous business I had built had spent a ton of time in Southeast Asia, Indonesia, in Central America, et cetera, places where they have three meters of rainfall a year and yet nothing to drink. And so could we apply the principles of renewables, right? Uh, making a resource distributed, infrastructure free, and importantly, or maybe most importantly, make the feedstock free, which is, of course, sunlight in the case of renewables. Can we apply those principles to water? And if we could, that seemed like that would be a big unlock for what I believe is humanity's greatest challenge. You've said that although the municipal water infrastructure in the U.S. is good, 20% of the water still leaks out. Can you kind of walk us through how you came up with hydro panels as a way around that kind of faulty infrastructure? Yeah, obviously infrastructure works really well in a lot of places and it works very poorly in many, many more places or not as non-existent in other places. And so, you know, that 20% leak is associated with 750 water main breaks a day, but that is separate from the 1.5 million miles lead pipes that are still in the ground and separate from the fact that about 15%, so about 60 million Americans are on wells and the EPA says that over half of those wouldn't pass an EPA quality test. That's in the United States, or arguably the wealthiest country that there ever was. And of course, as you move outside the U.S., it gets more challenging. So there's an infrastructure challenge, but there's also the challenge that we're sort of stuck in. I sort of use this term of in the Roman era with respect to water, because we still wait for the stuff to fall out of the sky, soak into the ground. We pump it, we treat it, we send it downhill in a concrete pipe. So while, of course, there's all kinds of water technologies, that's the fundamentals associated with the resource. So this idea of applying the principles of renewables to water enables us to make something that is historically an extractive resource that we have to then clean up and do in bulk mode. We make it a distributed resource, something that you, Talib, can own for the first time. So when we think about what that means, you today, to access food, you might grow it in your garden, you might go buy it at a restaurant, you might get a grocery store. There's a bunch of ways you get your food. But when it comes to water, you either get it directly from your government or you go to the store and buy it in bottles. That's it. So something so fundamental to your life is sort of really narrowly available and you're a wealthy person in a wealthy place. And so how do we break that and make water as accessible 
as air, as the re other resources that you sort of own by virtue of the fact that you're alive. And so a source hydro panel just takes in sunlight and air and produces perfect drinking water essentially anywhere on the planet, now in 52 countries around the world. So that principle, that principle of renewables, that idea of making something that used to be extractive and bulk and maybe, you know, multi-billions of dollars to sort of put together infrastructure like electricity used to be or like landline telephone used to be. And we make it instead something that is distributed and democratized. So the process that enables these hydro panels to work, uh, it's called hydroscopy. Am I saying that right? Yeah. So many, many materials are hygroscopic with a G, hygroscopic. Uh, because uh, Greek for water vapor was hygro with a G, and Greek for uh, liquid water was hydro with a D. So hygroscopic it <laughs> refers to materials that like water vapor, right? And I would argue that probably more materials than not are hygroscopic. So we have older wooden furniture that shrinks in the winter, swells in the summer. You know, the fact you don't go jogging in a cotton shirt when you go to that favorite greasy spoon cafe and they have in the salt shaker a little bit of rice kernels, mm. right? All of those uh, sort of things that you experience are because the materials are hygroscopic. So salt is hygroscopic, rice is more hygroscopic. So when the humidity is high in that greasy spoon cafe, the rice essentially steals the water vapor from the salt so that you can still you know, shake the salt out. Mm. So this is a common property across materials what we did on that front is we developed a set of nanostructured, hierarchically porous structures that are hygroscopic, made of hygroscopic material, that allow us to concentrate water vapor from the atmosphere by about 10,000 times by volume very quickly. So very high kinetics of that process. And then throughout the day, we show those materials to the atmosphere, and then we show them to sunlight. And we do that multiple hundreds of times per day in order to produce inside the panel, a water vapor condition such that under passive conditions, we get condensation. So we reproduce the condition of when you walk out of your home in the morning and there's dew on leaves, right? And you sort of say, okay, well, how did that happen, right? Right. But well, we can right. do that in the middle of the Sahara Desert at high noon, right? Yeah. And so it's a nature-based approach, but of course that belies a lot of elegance and sophistication behind how we make source work, which is that we have hired material scientists, chemical engineers, mechanical engineers, computational fluid dynamicists, materials, uh, thermodynamicists, machine learning experts, and so on to sort of solve this problem in a way that's very efficient, very elegant, so that we can just literally ship it to you. You take it out of a box. 15 minutes later, you have it set up in your yard. And 30 minutes later, you get a glass of water. Wow. Imagine the unlock around the world especially with being able to do that. It's kind of mind-blowing to think that you can get so much water from the air from something you, you can't see, right? So it's hard for us to visualize. Is there a downside, by the way, of pulling so much water from the atmosphere? Does that do anything to the air around us? In the troposphere, the lower part of the atmosphere, there's one times 10 to the 16 kilograms. So one and then 16 zeros kilograms of water vapor Wow. That's more than six times all the rivers on the planet. Huh. And it, the average lifetime of water molecule in the atmosphere is about a week. So it's cycling a lot. That's basically 100 million years worth of every humans on the planet's water needs, but it's recycled every week. And 
Interestingly, you're not the first person to ask that question, of course. So one of the questions I got recently on Twitter was like, okay, but how much water, excess water is there due to climate change? Yeah. And so doing a little digging and a few calculations, it turns out that over the last 30 years, so since just 1990, we've actually increased that amount of water vapor by one times 10 to the 14 kilograms in the atmosphere. Wow. So about 1%, it's actually a few percent over what it was. And even that is many hundreds of gallons per person per day of excess. So it's just a massive resource that of course, that excess is associated with the big hurricanes and all those things. So it's literally an inexhaustible resource that is just waiting there to be tapped to really sort of advance humanity. We have a huge problem when it comes to potable water around the world. One person dies from water illness every 10 seconds. Wow. And today, you know, what is today? September 21st, 2021, women and girls will walk to the tune of over 200 million hours today, this day. How is that possible, right? So fundamentally, the reason why I founded the company was to ultimately make it so that no woman or girl ever walks for water again. Yeah. By the time we get there, of course, we'll have solved many, many other drinking water challenges along the way. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, you've said that, you know, this is a way to get water primarily to the people who really, really need it around the world. Can you talk about a couple of examples in the, I believe, 52 countries where you've installed hydro panels, where this is really making a difference? Absolutely. So what's interesting is that drinking water stress is at every economic station and every geography. So we're at high-end hotels in Mexico, high-end hotels in Australia, we're at hospitals, we're at schools in South Africa, in the US. You know, really everything from individual homes to institutions everything from people with very modest economic means all the way to you know, some of the wealthiest amongst us. Right? We have panels at Robert Downey Jr.'s home in Malibu, okay. all the way to the Navajo tribe where we have in the Navajo Nation here, it's the size of West Virginia, to give you a size of the geography. Wow. And 54,000 Navajo have no water, zero. So they drive to either Flagstaff or Gallup to get water. Oh, wow. We've just installed our first 500 homes worth of source hydro panels at, at those homes. And those people have perfect drinking water at their home now for the first time. Take that over to Aboriginal communities in Australia, right? The first time they now have good drinking water. We're at now over 1,500 homes there. To island nations, to uh, the Waiyu tribe in Northern Colombia, where women were walking about six hours a day for water. We installed two arrays there last year. They no longer walk the water. So, you know, really quite a range from offsetting plastic at high-end hotels. So when you go into your hotel room, instead of the two PET bottles, right, and the little placard that says, oh, hang up your towel if you want to save the dolphins, here is a real way to save the dolphins, right? Offsetting that plastic, and it's a direct switch and save for those hotels. And you, as the guest, see, oh, okay, I'm, I'm now in, you know, a glass bottle that was filled from that array right there. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's, at my home, it's all my drinking and cooking water for my family, and all, all the way to a far-flung place in the world where there's drinking water stress. What's the cost of installing one of these panels? Um, obviously, for Robert Downey Jr., the, the cost is not a problem, but, but for some of these communities, which are already poor communities that, that need water, what's the cost and, and who's financing it? Yeah, so obviously cost goes heavily with scale. 
And what I can say is when we're talking about Navajo and many, many other places, we are the lowest cost source of drinking water, right? So if you want to talk about sort of the economics of a single home, you know, in the United States, right, which of course is the most expensive because it's got to lift it up onto a roof and got to install it and run a line and everything. That is a $2,000 panel plus the installation and so on. Now that CapEx, of course, is when we're, now we build, you know, only on the order of tens of thousands of panels a year. The majority of that cost though is like steel, glass, plastic, et cetera. So it's a tiny fraction of what it costs us to build it today. So all of our cost is really in conversion. So the scaling laws associated with source are very similar to how you think about solar, right? 20 years ago, 15 years ago, solar was expensive. Today, solar is the lowest cost way to get electricity. In a very similar way, today, operating costs, right? Remember, we're just basically sunlight and air. Our operating costs today are competitive with the water you flush toilets with at your home, right? So forget, you know, whether you're buying bottled water or something else. So once you have that hardware, the ongoing cost is minuscule. So you can see very quickly how long-term we ultimately are that lowest cost delivered potable water on the planet. And of course, today we tackle problems that have substantial human impact or environmental impact. So when we talk about offsetting plastic bottled water at hotels, that's a direct switch and save for the hotel and obviously a direct positive impact for the environment. When we talk about working with various indigenous communities around the planet, Often they are laboring, whether it's long walking distance, driving, et cetera. So again, we're the lowest cost solution for those people. So we really are sort of wellness for people and planet. And of course, as we continue to come down that cost curve, we'll be able to impact yet ever more people. Right. One of the kind of side benefits is that it's possible that you're cutting down plastic waste, right, from plastic water bottles. Um, of course, one of the biggest contributors to plastic waste. So can you talk a little bit about the impact that, that you're having in, in that area? Yeah, bottled water. I think many people sort of think of the doubt that as sort of the convenience thing and why, why would you buy bottled water? It's such a wasteful thing. But it turns out that 95% of bottled water is actually primary drinking water supply for people who don't have good infrastructure around the world. Right. And it's over half a trillion liters sold globally every year. So about a trillion plastic bottles. It's a massive amount. It's a huge carbon footprint of order 1% of humanity, all of anthropogenic carbon. So it's a massive carbon footprint. And of course it's expensive. The global average is 55 cents a liter, right? So very, very expensive. And it's growing at a 9% compound annual growth rate, right? So it's just sort of this massive problem that's only growing. And it's not growing because people in LA or New York are you know, trying to be more bougie with their water. It's growing because of climate change, because of challenges associated with getting good water. And of course, the economic uplift, uplift of people globally, right, which of course, poverty is decreasing, but that means that as people get that next increment of money, guess what they're gonna spend it on? Trying to improve their drinking water so that their kids can go to school, so they can go to work and not have digestive tract issues. So bottled water is a massive challenge, it's not the evil that it's made out to be sort of in the broader media because it's solving a problem for people, but it is also a massive environmental challenge we have to solve. And so by leapfrogging infrastructure, right, the, the analogy I really like is you think about the fact that there are never landlines 
put in around, you know, on the African continent, most of the African continent. Why? Well, because they were late to the game, but then smartphones came along and there was never a need for landlines. So in a very similar way, there are many, many places that will never get a pipe, that will never be able to have a safe well, or are going backwards in that regard, saltwater intrusion during the climate change and so on. How do we solve drinking water for those people in a way that's also sustainable? And of course, bottled water is a way to solve the problem unsustainably, both economics and, of course, environmentally. So one of your latest pieces of news, uh, Cody, is that the venture capitalist uh, Chamath Palahapitiya recently pledged $7 million of his own capital to help install hydropanels across California's Central Valley. So who will benefit from those panels and, and how else do you plan to use some of those funds? Yeah, so Chamath, who has obviously become very well-known as of late, is really thinking about how does he solve challenges in his own backyard. And we know, many of us know, I think, that uh, the Central Valley is one of the great breadbaskets of the U.S. And I think there's some crazy statistics about the number of times over just that region could feed all of humanity. It's a sort of remarkable um, sort of uh, productive area. But what that's come with over the last century is a massive drawdown of the water table, right? It's gone down something like 80 feet over the last 100 years. And the adding of a lot of pesticides and fertilizers and so on to that land has caused the water table to become non-potable, become really poisoned. And so there are communities of farm workers, many hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of farm workers who are sitting on land that does not produce potable water, and yet it's mostly well water, or their municipal supply is non-potable. And so guess what? They're buying bottled water. And guess what? They're getting trucked in water. Guess what? They're you know doing all sorts of things in order to try to solve that problem. And so here we can come along and say, that infrastructure you have for flushing toilets, keep that. Here is a solution that allows you to leapfrog to perfect water in a way that really not only provides you renewable water that you own, but it's sort of fully digitized in the sense that we know exactly that that water exists, that we're delivered it to you, and that you're consuming it. And so we're able to really not only do what we say we're going to do, but also we know that we've done it and the quality is there. Sure. And what's kind of your vision for scaling? Do you kind of have any targets for scaling up? And, and how feasible is it to do that on a large scale? Highly feasible. Our vision is to perfect water for every person, every place. We sort of mean that literally, even though it's a very aspirational vision. Every person, every place, we mean literally. And then we say perfect because we have a vision of what perfect is now. But of course, when we get there, I think we'll keep moving that goalpost. But the fact is the resource is global, right? The water vapor resource is global. The sunlight resource is global. The need is global. And the parallels here, and I've, you know, I sort of brought it up earlier, but the parallels here between scaling costs down like you saw in solar are very strong with the way that source will scale and cost down. And we have the ability to build as many units as, as we see fit. So we have sort of a low, low capex model of how we scale the manufacturing. It's relatively straightforward. There's a term, I don't know if it's broadly used or not, but it's called white goods, which is like washer dryers and dishwashers and those sorts of things. So think about how those are manufactured ever more efficiently will be the same. And so from a cost perspective, it gets there. From a scale perspective, it gets there. And we're able to localize. So we're able to say, okay, 
We've done now about, I'd say, four or five dozen separate projects in India, which, of course, is a tiny drop in the bucket compared to the total need in India. Um, and so we can easily say, okay, let's set up a facility in Pune and localize our manufacturing to get the benefits of you know, being local, using local resources, using local labor, and, of course, serving the people where we're manufacturing. So we can scale both vertically and locally in a way that is sort of starts to spin that flywheel, both from a cost perspective and from a footprint perspective. Well, Cody, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Talib, my absolute pleasure. So this interview really made me think about how kind of lucky and privileged we are that whenever we're thirsty, we just go to the tap and open the tap and, and we don't have to worry about where our water comes from. Whereas Cody said, there's millions of people around the world who walk for hours to find clean water. It's interesting that he said that plastic water bottles are, are not this evil that we make them out to be. In the main, you know, across the world, people are using water bottles as a supply of, of clean water. Often we may have had that experience going to a developing country um, on vacation, for example, and they say not to drink tap water. You know, these are people's lives every day. So it seems like the best way to solve something like this is like a technology that is based on a natural cycle that already takes place and we're essentially just borrowing from it. If uh, the company is able to scale it up in a responsible way, then it seems like it could be a, a great solution. That's it for our show today. Join us next time to learn more about the innovative leaders seeking to make a difference in our ever-changing world. Please give us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Talib Vizram. Our show is produced and edited by Avery Miles.